I tuned in to BFF.FM, and it was pretty obscure. There was a lot of music on there that I didn't know. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. They didn't play Dave Matthews' band. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. Bringing the underground to the foreground.
Good morning. You are listening to TV on the radio here on BFF.FM. I'm Leah, and I'm here with Jessica. Good morning, Jessica. How are you? Good morning, Leah. I'm fine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's our first show of 2023. It is our first show of 2023. And and it starts with an amendment to our last show of 2022, (laughs) correct? Yeah, I think. I I don't know. I may have softened my stance on that a little bit now. But yes, mostly um, an amendment to our last show of 2022, which was our top five list. Um, Today, we are talking about the Hulu FX show, I guess it's just FX, and then it airs on Hulu. Does FX exist? I don't know. (laughs) I actually don't know. It's a mystery to me. Does FX exist as anything other than a Chiron on the Hulu channel? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, today we are talking about the FX show, (laughs) Fleischman is in Trouble, based on the novel of the same name written by Taffy Brodesser, Ackner, Acker. Ackner? I don't know, actually. I I read it many, many times. And I will not. Too many, one too many, too many words in that name. (laughs) Yeah. Pick two. I've read it many times. Um, you read the book, right? I did read the book. It was a best-selling novel in 2019. I read the book. I actually, um, I read the book while we were on a trip. I read, I read the book, uh, finished it while in Laguna Beach, the gorgeous Laguna Beach, California. Um, and I liked the book quite a bit and I thought that it was really interesting. And then I watched the show, which obviously also same author, same everything. She's a showrunner. She's a showrunner, all of it. And I was like, Wow, what a revelation. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) I love this story. (laughs) So uh, we've learned that I'm a visual learner, guys. (laughs) I need people doing motions for the actual emotion of a story Mm -hmm. to penetrate this cold, dead husk. Um, So anyway, Fleischman is in Trouble is ostensibly the story of Toby Fleischman, nephrologist. Uh, No, I don't know. He's a liver doctor, whatever you call that. I think. Is that a nephrologist? I don't know. Is that is all that our liver heads thing? are sh- yeah. <laughs> ripping their hair out right now? Anyway, um, Toby Fleischman, a doctor on the Upper East Side in New York, and uh, he is in the midst of a divorce from his talent agency wife, Rachel Fleischman, and reconnects with his um, college and year abroad in Israel pals, Libby Epstein, formerly Slater, and uh, <laughs> Seth. Not Cohen. Seth Cohen. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Seth Cohen. The Seth Cohen of all of our hearts. And uh, Libby is the narrator of this show, and she is telling the story of Toby's foray into dating and the um, kind of retrospective of the breakdown of his marriage. And uh, yeah, it evolves from there. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the show, Jess? I really liked it. I, excuse me, I did not read the book. I didn't have any uh preconceived notions going on didn't know what to expect and um i guess i guess just based on we saw the billboard on sunset boulevard in los angeles (laughs) and i saw the title card on on hulu of uh jesse eisenberg with his arms akimbo on his hips and i was just like kind of expecting (laughs) like a sort of a woody allen ish vibe you know like Mm -hmm. about an upper east side white man having a crisis um 
And it definitely started that way, and but it really evolved. And I guess I didn't expect it to be... It had something of a mystery element, mm-hmm. like the way events were revealed. Um, it begins with Rachel, Toby's estranged, now ex-wife, um, dropping their children off at his apartment earlier than was planned yeah. and then disappearing. Yeah. And I, a lot of it is... It, Toby's so wrapped up in his own shit that... It, he doesn't stop to wonder like why his wife has just fallen off mm-hmm. of the planet. And so I, I, I was really struck or, you know, drawn in by like the, what fucking happened yeah. to Rachel of it all, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it goes on for many episodes of her just being off the grid. And this is a woman who, as you said, runs a talent agency is very, you know, concerned with her Upper East Side life mm-hmm. and her, uh, I mean, she, we're introduced to her as sort of a cold-hearted bitch mm-hmm. and like a terrible wife and I guess he would say a bad mom, but she's obviously not the type of person who would just disappear from her life. And yes. I was like, oh my God, she's been murdered and he's not even like picking up on this. Yeah. <laughs> and that that um, is floated early in the show by mm-hmm. Libby, his friend, saying yeah. like, well, you know, are you worried about her seeing as you haven't heard from her in days, which then extends into weeks. Yeah. Um, and we do see a brief uh, sort of montage of Toby going through what that would be like to be worried about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, Rachel is posited as this cold-hearted bitch who's also, she's extremely capable. She's very high-powered. Yeah. She's very powerful in New York. And she has truly, you know, clawed her way to the top of this social strata. And yeah. Which she wasn't born into. She Which, comes from humble yeah. means. And- yes. Yeah, and, made her way on the Upper East Side. Yeah, and people like that do not vanish from their no. life. Their <laughs> life, their, like, her job and her um, wardrobe, her everything defines who that person is. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, 100% who Rachel Fleischman is. And there's no way that people like that absent themselves from just drop out no. of their life. Not voluntarily. Not voluntarily, but... Um, yeah, Toby just figures she's such a bitch that, of course, she's doing something for yeah, herself. she does this. He, yeah. he tells Libby, which is bullshit. She does not do this. <laughs> yeah, nobody does this. No. That lady in Massachusetts does this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But the story evolves to really become a wider lens on not just Toby, but Libby and Seth and basically... And Rachel, we do ultimately find out what's happening to Rachel or what has been happening to Mm -hmm. Rachel, um, which is a complete mental breakdown where she has (laughs) lost time and um, totally dissociated from her life and has been holed up in her apartment um, in the deep in the throes of uh, severe mental breakdown. Yeah. Um, So... uh, yeah, so that's what the show's about. <laughs> <laughs> no, spoilers, sorry. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, spoilers if you haven't seen Fleischman is in trouble. But uh, one of the things I loved about obviously both the book and the show is that this the show does start off telling the story from Toby's perspective and then becomes it it Trojan horses these like stories about women into this larger story about a man Mm -hmm. and the really brilliant thing about the show is that it telegraphs all of this it says this early on that's exactly how Libby describes her career working in the 90s at a men's magazine that in order to get anything published she had to like Trojan horse interesting 
things about women into something about a man to right. make it interesting. And everything in the story and in the show is telegraphed from pretty early on. But yeah, I mentioned the, the billboard on Sunset Boulevard, which re- literally telegraphed the the poster for the show is Libby and um, Rachel, Rachel Fleischman standing together. Toby at the Fleischman's... top, and then there's a zipper with Toby Fleischman oh, at, at the, the bottom. bottom of the um, and so, like, we are presented with Rachel as this sort of, like, bad wife and cold-hearted person. Um, but I knew from that that, like, we are going to get her side of the story. I actually thought, not having read the book, that, like, we were going to get a narration from Rachel's mm-hmm. voice at some point, um, which we didn't. It's all through Libby's voice. But we definitely saw, like, the, you know, through the other side of the story that was... Yeah. Rachel focused. Yes. And um, yeah, so I I just think it was really, really well done the way it subverts so much of the narrative. And then um, a big part of this story is about how everything is interconnected, right? Like Toby's story obviously is connected to Rachel's, but is also part of Libby's mm-hmm. thing. Like everything that happens to you in your life in any way does sort of bring you to the point you're at now. Um, the Libby character is someone that I uh, deeply related to. Yeah. I, I mentioned that I wept all through the last episode where she kind of has this realization about like how this has been about her, like her getting this invested in Toby and Rachel's story has just been an outlet for her to feel something of her old life again. And yeah. Being on record as a real nostalgia bitch really really hit something um, for me. I think that I am 100% a person who, 100% a person who like acutely feels the passing of time and the narrowing of choices and just, you know, the, the, yeah, just like the the loss of potential of every day that we live, like, something gets narrower, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get more and more entrenched in what you're doing. And Libby is really struggling with being a suburbanite who is not writing yeah. anymore and um, doesn't know where she fits. She doesn't feel that she fits in the suburbs in New Jersey, which Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> God, the show did. Deeply I've relate. <laughs> spent a very little time in the suburbs of New Jersey. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tenafly, New Jersey, to be specific. Morristown, New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but yet the show in a brief scenes filmed at her home in New mm-hmm. Jersey really captured the New Jersey feel like you yeah. could just feel how <laughs> like sure. hot and humid it was. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it just felt, I was also, this is really an aside, but there's a scene where Toby comes to visit her and they're getting ready to take all the kids to the pool mm-hmm. at their like clubhouse. And she's filling like water bottle mm-hmm. after water bottle. And that <laughs> just felt like such a perfect encapsulation yeah. of suburban motherhood. Yeah. Just like filling up water bottles. Yeah. Constantly closing the freezer that some mysterious person in the house is leaving <laughs> yeah. open. It was so perfect. Yeah. I really felt, I viscerally felt New Jersey suburbanism in there. Yeah, 100%. I was waiting for John Quinones to be filming a what would you do in the little town that they lived in. <laughs> <laughs> because that's very much the vibe <laughs> that it had. Um, but yeah, so Libby, uh, yeah, over the course of this, the show and the book comes to realize that, you know, her very deep connection 
to Toby and to Seth, who they, as I said, all did a year abroad in Israel and then went to college. Well, they didn't actually all go to college together, but remained friends through college. Yeah. And um, just that connection to like who you were when your life was filled with endless possibility, mm-hmm. like you're just starting and then to have that, you know, come back up and to slip right back into that with people who knew you when you were that person um, and then just to try to figure out, like, how did I become the person I was and, yeah. or I am? And and where did the person I was go? Like, is the person I was still in there? Can you, you know, can you reconcile the two? Like, does all of that create who you are now? Or is it like there's still some dormant part of, like, cooler you left in right. there, you know? <laughs> um, she starts smoking and vaping again. Right. And, you know, it's just these small little things that signify that this is really a woman who's lost and the story for the first five episodes is a hundred percent narrated about Toby and through Toby's perspective and the shift um into the women's stories was I just thought really really powerful and just really well done and yeah. Toby is somebody who is himself struggling going through a very legitimate like life transition that's really hard um but also has no space or time to recognize that anyone else is going through anything right. including the fact that the mother of his children is suffering a severe mental break yeah <laughs> and um the story of uh so Rachel's story is told through Libby who runs into her in the park um and Libby gets the story from Rachel she says it's all told in a disjointed manner and it doesn't quite make sense and it's not maybe in the order it happened. But Rachel's trauma dates back to her childhood when her mother died and she was raised by her grandmother who was very cold and she, you know, has been striving to attain acceptability and like social, um, you know, social rank yeah. all of her life. And then um, when she was pregnant with her first child, had a very traumatic um, birth situation, mm-hmm. including like violation by a doctor, what she felt was violation. It's not explicitly said that that was a violation. Um, but I also, I, I mean, pregnancy and childbirth is obviously fraught. There's much being made in this country right now about the need to do better, like with regards to maternal mortality rates, mm-hmm. especially for women of color. Um, with regards to just, yeah, healthcare in general, the system is very broken, but it was extremely highlighted to me when I myself was pregnant and I had a not uncomplicated birth. It was protracted and took many, many days and, uh, it's made like violently clear that you as a woman are a conduit to getting this baby out and, the trauma that Rachel experiences is really dismissed by Toby. And that I thought one of like the most powerful scenes is he tries to set her up with, she's going through what looks like extremely, you know, intense postpartum depression or some type of trauma after the birth. And Toby works at the hospital and tries to send her to a survivor's group. And uh, she ends up actually going to a sexual assault survivors group and you see her have this like visceral breakdown 
at this group, she's unable to even like get a word out. She just has this like guttural cry where these women just surround her and like hold her basically. And then she comes to his office afterwards and he's like, how did it go? And she's like, or, you know, and she says, no more talking for now. And he says, there's my wife. (laughs) And it was just the like ultimate thing in like, that's all this man wants is for her to be okay. And right. that's not in itself a bad thing, but it's also just like, can we shut her down and off again? Like, can we just power her down and yeah. just have her be okay again? And like, just the, the, I think that so much of that, like childbirth is something that is on the one hand revered in this country and on the other hand, completely like, it's all supposed to be completely natural. Like just, I don't know the it's just everything yeah. around childbirth is it's it's dramatic it is a major major like yeah and the show you know it, it did an incredible job of drawing that line from like you said there's I mean you didn't say these words but I think there must be something very dehumanizing mm-hmm. about giving birth in this hospital situation yeah. where you are like you said just a conduit to getting this baby out and the show drew a line between that and like how close that comes to sexual violation Mm -hmm. like she felt um sexually assaulted by this doctor who induced her birth in this kind of violent way without her permission or consent consent. yeah um and and then yeah like the way toby just wants her to be better but he doesn't want the Mm nitty-gritty you know like yeah and i think there's a way in which men don't want to acknowledge um the trauma that women endure you know either giving birth or being sexually violated or just living in a world where you could be sexually Mm -hmm. violated at any time really and i think that there's this like uh resistance to acknowledging that like when that whole thing like Mm -hmm. men want to hold on to this kernel of like you know women are just kind of prone to hysteria you know yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you don't sure. want to like let go of that possibility and that childbirth like, is natural yeah and and the, millions of women do this every yeah, day you Why always want to be able to hold on to that idea that whatever you know your partner your wife is going through your female partner it's like it could always just be like you know she's she's like having one she's having a, an episode yeah <laughs> you know, it's pms it's hysteria it's, it's hysteria. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and if somebody yeah. had offered me cocaine afterwards, I'm sure I'd be past the trauma of yeah. <laughs> my child. Yes, if somebody had sent me to a fainting couch with a bag of cocaine, yeah. I'm sure that would have gone a long way to help my trauma. <laughs> the good um, old days, we call that. Yeah. When healthcare um, was really something <laughs> meant taking care of us. But yeah, I do think it's incredibly dehumanizing. And, and it truly, I mean, I remember I had, I had a seizure. I was in hospital for four days before I ended up having my daughter. And on the fourth day, they were going to induce and they were still pushing, pushing, pushing for me to have a natural birth. And nothing was happening with the induction. I was not making enough progress. And then I developed an infection and the baby developed an infection. Mm -hmm. So they were like, we have to do like a C-section, but we're going to give you a few more hours. We're going to try like one more thing. And I where this infection goes down in tears. And I remembered there was a room full of residents and one doctor said to me, why are you crying? Oh my God. And I said, (laughs) because I've been here for four days. And by the way, the four days that I was there. I was hooked up to an IV. I was catheterized. I was oh. throwing up for the entire four days because I was on magnesium, <laughs> which is very hard on your system to stop further seizures. 
And I said, because I don't have anything left right now. I hadn't eaten in four days. I had had ice chips and bags of vomit. That's all I had had. I hadn't eaten in four days. Why are you crying? (laughs) And they said, why are you crying? And I said, because I don't have anything left right now. And after I have this baby, I then have to take care of this baby. It's not like this is an end point. Like this is not... The it's goal the for finish you line. guys is <laughs> the finish to, line is 18 years away, yeah, however the, many days this takes. It's true. The goal for them was to get the baby out. Like yeah. I was looking at the rest of my life starting from zero, yeah. you know, and I was just like, cut the fucking baby out. Like yeah. we're done. And then I ended up having a C-section. I did not know until six weeks later that I had, I knew I was in the recovery room for a very long time. I like hemorrhaged had to have six units of blood which is considered a major transfusion Mm -hmm. and to this day my husband's like it wasn't that bad (laughs) (laughs) i said i almost died and he said you didn't almost die and i said six units of blood is a major transfusion and Mm -hmm. it felt terrible to me it felt like truly terrible to have that negated and right, to be and like, that's, it's that. What, that's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. There's yeah. always you. Ha- they have to hold on to like you're being hysterical. But you I didn't w- almost die. But it's will, like gas- <laughs> gaslighting. But- just is in their fucking blood. <laughs> but I will say the other thing about that, not to shit on my husband, no. because neither of us were told that. Sure. I discovered. So I do remember. So every day they were like, "You need iron. You need iron." You had a little bit of bleeding, and then I went to my six week follow up, and the doctor who I saw for my six-week follow-up, was reading my notes, and he said, Jesus. Like, he didn't say Jesus. He said, "What? wow. <laughs> he said, you had a really hard time. And he said, you uh, hemorrhaged. He said, you would really want to think about doing this again very carefully before you decide to get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I'm six weeks out, and I love that he's thinking, yeah. like, <laughs> just in case you're, right. you're thinking of uh, getting pregnant immediately you might want to think well, about you're that Irish. <laughs> yeah. That was in your chart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, but yeah, so that's not to shit on my husband because that's the whole thing. I was not informed of that. Yeah. I was not informed. They didn't, everything was fine. Same uh-huh. thing. Like, yes, you hemorrhaged and some janitor had to clean up the seven units of blood that you lost that we had to transfuse right. six units into, but you don't need to know that. You're fine now. Mm-hmm. Like, just the whole thing. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to make this about my traumatic no, no. birth experience. But I do think that, you know, for Toby, that line where he's just like, there's my wife. Yeah. And it's just the sense of relief he has that he doesn't have to delve into this any deeper. And now he can just go on because yeah. everything's fixed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is like as accurate a portrayal of women being dismissed as I've seen. Right. And it's not in a cruel way. It's you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just the fact that women are always starting from further back than men in any of these situations. And that's what Libby ultimately comes to. She talks about working at this men's, um, this men's magazine in the 90s where, you know, she clawed for every assignment that she got. And there was uh, an author of Philip Roth type played by Christian uh, Slater mm-hmm. um, who... Archer Sylvan, it's just like the perfect name. (laughs) Archer Sylvan, who, you know, spun everything into gold and he wrote these interesting big stories, the type of stories that she wanted to write that she never got the opportunity to write. Um, And she talks about how, you know, she, she gave that up because she felt that was a losing proposition. And it's, and then, you know, you give up 
a piece of yourself. And she talks about how that job defined so much of who she was when she was young and, and the power of like being young as a woman and living in the city. She takes this kind of tour through like when she was young and single and living in New York and just how vibrant and connected and like plugged into everything you feel. And she talks about, she says, you know, like how briefly I wielded that power. She talks Mm. about having an affair with an older writer who was married and how she, you know, felt really powerful in that situation. And she talks about how briefly she wielded that power and how quickly she gave it up. And um, I just think those are all really universal experiences, even if you don't live on the Upper East Side and you're not a struggling (laughs) writer. Um, I think that, yeah, men just have an innate, leg up it's just stories are told through their perspective everything is given more power like it was a male doctor who violated rachel and toby was like that's not what happened basically he was just like he's just you know just doing his job here you don't know like Mm -hmm. let's leave the medicine to the men type you know yeah um just all of it and yeah libby just coming to that realization that like everything about toby that she's so caught up in is really about her, but it's still, it even takes her five beats to realize any of that because you do get caught up in that. Yeah. And yeah, it's sad, man. (laughs) It took me um, until the second episode for some reason, because I'm stupid to realize that Libby was the narrator. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess in the book, it's kind of a reveal that Libby, which obviously it can't really be in the TV series, but um do you feel like something was lost by not having that be like a big reveal in the story? I don't. No. Um, because I think there's also multiple readings of the story, which is much has been made of, especially the end of the series. People are like, well, is this just Libby's book? Libby talks about writing this book about everything. And mm-hmm. then it's like, is the story of Fleischman in trouble just her narrating her book? Is yeah. It like, is is that what it is? Is what we see at the end, um, which again, spoiler, the last scene is Toby going home, this terrible rain or this terrible heat that he's been oppressed by all summer breaks. There's a storm, the heat breaks, and then he hears a lock in or he hears a key in the door and turns around and it's Rachel in silhouette. Yeah. Um friend of the show, Inger, had texted me after she finished this and said that she thought it was extremely cold the treatment of Rachel in the book and she thought that you know she was really worried about like these kids dealing with a mother who had like a total breakdown and hasn't gotten help and I think uh that wasn't it's it's more explicitly laid out in the book that she like hires a nurse and she has like a full-time nurse while she's you know Libby finds her and then she gets a nurse and she's trying to recover for it's more explicitly laid out but I also think that it kind of worked in the telling of this story. Libby goes to Toby and explains that she's found Rachel and let, like she didn't abandon anyone. She's had this complete break, like she's lost time. And Toby is just like, fuck her, it's not my problem. Right. And um, and he says she did abandon everyone. She's not here. And it's the same thing of like your like his problem takes priority. Like the fact that he had right. to deal with the kids for three weeks takes priority over the fact yeah, that like, the mother of his children. Yeah, I wasn't very sympathetic to Toby's character at no, all. of course. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I felt, he felt like he had done his time, mm-hmm. like investing in this marriage and he uh, had earned his 
freedom from her yeah. and the, you know, uh, right to tell her to fuck off. But yeah, I just found it very, uh, it, it's a, you can't ever fully divorce the person that's the mother of your you, children. Yeah. You know, you, <laughs> yeah. you have to be invested yeah. in her well-being to yeah. some degree. And he, he wasn't. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think I, I was a little eye-rolly at the revelation at the end that, like, Libby is the author of this story because mm-hmm. it reminded me of the Gilmore Girls. And yeah. Oh, <laughs> which God. Which is so annoying. Right. Just, like, and I feel like it's a trope, although I cannot cite another instance of, like, and that at the end, it turns out this is the book I wrote about. Anyway. Succession is actually written by Chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> It, impossible <laughs> given the way Shiv comes off in, in succession yeah. um that's a good mental exercise though who would be the author of succession Jerry Jerry <laughs> no it would be Logan's wife what's her name oh yeah. French mysterious French yeah. wife um but uh yeah I think it does like cast an interesting light on the whole thing given that it's about different people's different differing understandings of the same story you know Mm -hmm. like I did I feel like Toby's one moment of introspection was when he asked himself if Rachel was ever who he thought Mm -hmm. she was or if he had just made up a story for her from the beginning and like that's where all their tension and disagreement sprung from is that like she was always honest about what she wanted Mm -hmm. and who she was and he just never listened because he had decided in his own mind what their story was but isn't that true of literally every relationship of course yeah i think that's every real and i don't think it's i actually don't think that fleischman is in trouble is the story of the book that libby wrote Mm -hmm. i think that it was the events leading up to i don't know her starting point um, yeah. Do you think Libby's going to find happiness, like getting back to writing a, a little domestic story, like like women are meant to write <laughs> in her suburban New Jersey existence? Yeah, I think so because I think the beauty of it is that the the thing that I really loved and the thing that made me weep so much about this is that everything really is a, a little domestic story in your yeah. existence, whether your existence is on the Upper East Side or whatever. Like, I just I think. It did a really beautiful job of highlighting the thing about like ev- where she is in her life that she's so dissatisfied with is just all the choices she has made that to of course she wouldn't make any of them differently. But you can still mourn everything that you've lost. And like that is life, right? It's constant loss. Like everything yeah. changes. And yeah, you're never going to be there's a whole scene where she talks about which you're a longtime proponent of saying that, you know, you're never going to be hotter than you are right now at this very second. Yeah. I mean, I say that with an understanding that I should have appreciated it more when I was 18 and actually hot. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. The youth is wasted on the but young. Yes, is, you got to. You know, Fleischman is in trouble. Colon youth is wasted on yeah. the young. Is the, but but the there's a really, really beautiful scene where she talks about, like, it flashes on all these scenes from her life, and it's just about how, like, it's never going to be better than it is now, and now, and now, and now, and it's, like, everything in your past that led you here. It's, like, the stupid filling your water bottle. It's, Mm -hmm. like, all of that is, it's, it really is, like, it was, it felt deeply profound to me. I was, like, how fucking tragic that life is just constant grief and loss at, like, what you can't have or what you don't have or what you didn't choose. And like, it's also just like exquisitely beautiful that we get to like experience all of this. And yeah, it's, it's just crushing, but (laughs) 
in a beautiful way. Um, but I, I just really, uh, I don't know. I just found it like deeply moving and very, uh, just deeply, deeply related to the fact that like this is a woman who's struggling when she has nothing to struggle against. Like there is right. nothing. I mean, in her that's life. always true, right? Yeah. Like it, everything. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You said you were um, meditating on that the idea of giving away the moment in your life when you had no obligations. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I don't, it made me think, cause I have, I have no obligations. <laughs> like I have, you know, my husband and our, our small lives to consider, but like I have no children and I am in fact past the point in my life where I have older people in my life to worry about. You know, my mm -hmm. parents are gone. My grandparents are gone. And I literally have no obligations and I've been thinking like, what the fuck should I do? Like, why, why am I here? Why am I sitting here like reading Twitter in my apartment? I have nothing to do. I should uh, I should be reading Twitter in Berlin. You know? <laughs> well, speaking of Twitter, um, we did receive uh, uh, we got a tweet. I was going to say text, but that's going to be next week when Twitter goes down for good. Um, we received a tweet from listener Alyssa. Thank you so much oh, for hey, listening. Um, and she says Gossip Girl is a good example of a bad author reveal. At oh, the yes. <laughs> that is a great example. <laughs> yeah, that is the Uber example, yeah. actually. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, but I think that's still like you're that's the thing. It's not about obligations or any of that. It's about, you know, you're still, I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just harping on the same thing about how like life is loss and grief and, and yet it's exquisitely yeah. beautiful to be I able mean, do to you like, feel like it's experience a little... Avatar the way of water. Oh my three God. Hours of it really looking forward to hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it? No, James Cameron is so far up his own ass. That's what I makes mean, him James Cameron. I, I totally understand that, but the the ultimate it could have been an email dude like <laughs> i mean three fucking hours get over yourself two of all what, the way five over yourself avatar sequels plan i guess yeah i don't know i gotta see it while it's in the theater there i finally watched the first one a couple days ago and i quite liked it there is a there's scene... something so sincere about it oh my god the script is i we i watched the first one a few weeks ago with my daughter who loved it and yeah. i feel it's appropriate for a nine-year-old absolutely love it. and yesterday she she was like, that movie was amazing. I wish it had been an hour and a half shorter. <laughs> Literally what she said. I can say that about almost anything I watch now, including things that are an hour and 31 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there's also a scene that's pretty much a direct lift from Titanic. And I'm like, I guess at least we can be thankful he's just stealing from himself. Yeah. Like <laughs> Avatar The Way of Water should have been called Avatanic. That's Avatanic. like, it's just... It's just I, I guess at least he's just stealing from himself. Well, presumably Titanic is so, um, you know, Canon. lodged in the our cultural lexicon that, sure. you know, 150 years in the future, whenever Avatar takes place, they're still making references to Titanic. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I just found like the Navi captain playing the violin as the ship went down. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> um. Anyway. Well, while we're on a tangent talking about extremely uh, sincere, epic films, uh, I just watched RRR I, the other night. I saw that on the Facebook. Uh, of course. <laughs> My husband can't do anything without reporting it on Facebook. But um, hi uh, highly recommend. That's what I heard. <laughs> Incredible film. Just, uh, yeah, it's on, it's on Netflix. Have you watched the movie or the menu yet? 
I did watch the menu. I found that delightful. I thought I, it, was, it was okay. I thought it was a jaunt. I thought it yeah, was it was fun. <laughs> I liked it more than Glass Onion, which was trash. <laughs> oh, I really enjoyed Glass Onion. Hated it. I have to say. Okay. Um. All right. So anyway, so this this is why, Jess. So you don't need obligation. You get the beauty of of this, right? Like we get to talk about Glass Onion being trash <laughs> and fill our time with Hallmark movies and absolutely. Else. I mean, I wouldn't trade this for anything. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so in speaking about the men in the show, um, we would be remiss not to bring up Seth Cohen, Uh Adam Brody, who, well, 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 Adam (laughs) Brody showed us all, didn't he? I have never not liked Adam Brody. I thought he was extremely, um, I I loved Seth Cohen as many young women did. I wasn't that young when that show came on, but, uh, yeah, I've always, I've always loved Adam Brody. He's still married to Leighton Meester. Sure is. What a beautiful couple. Yes, Jesus what is Christ? They just had another baby. Oh my God! And good for them. Yeah, Adam Brody going ahead and putting it out there, land pipe, hundred <laughs> percent. Adam Brody just really—he's—he's he's he, aged so well. He had a real glow up. Like he, I disagree. I mean, no, I think he was always very, very attractive. Yeah, but I think he is extremely male in a way that's not off-putting to me and that's ex- that's so rare i can't even tell you how rare that is it's he's got real alpha male energy that's without so it being threatening it's just he's he's got paul seth newman cohen invented that you he's know got paul newman vibes i actually me. fear that like seth cohen is responsible for like a lot a of generation the, of the yeah. sort of um i think kind of quippy beta male is not quite the right description of it but the sort of like but like the dialogue that like infects marvel movies Mm -hmm. like you know something exploding and someone saying well that just happened (laughs) i kind of worry that seth cohen the character seth cohen is responsible for that well Uh, for which he can never be forgiven but otherwise yeah adam brody two thumbs up yeah looks so good although i did laugh when they did like the flashback to their time in israel and like Mm -hmm. they i think jesse eisenberg is very youthful looking and when they put the jufro on him he just looks like a teenager again Mm -hmm. they did nothing to make adam brody look like anything other than a 41 year old man sitting at a picnic table with teenagers yeah (laughs) but you know better that than i guess like cgi youth technology absolutely don't mess with adam brody's face at any time don't do that (laughs) um but in the same token it's so the the conceit is that, you know, Libby's the cynical one. Uh, Jesse Eyes, what's his name? Toby. <laughs> Toby's the, you know, the starry eyed, hopeful, you know, dreamer, whatever, mm-hmm. who is out to save the world. And then uh, Seth is the one who's like the, they have a whole conversation where he astutely says how like they never recognized him as a real person. And yeah. he's the realist of, all of them. He is the one who accepts everything as it is. He's completely non-judgmental about his friends and yet totally clear-eyed about the ways in which they're flawed. And um, yeah, he's just out there living life in a way that's not striving or searching for anything. He's a great friend. There's a scene and I just rewatched the first episode and mm-hmm. I had forgotten that there's a scene where he's talking to Libby about like you don't smoke anymore like you don't not even like vape or anything and then he sends her a vape pen and like the note says like a legend needs fire to breathe and I was like I'm taking up smoking based on this (laughs) 
<laughs> if Seth Abrams is his name in the show had sent me that, I would have not just like I would have blown up my entire life, left my entire life to go be with a finance bro in New York and just been like, yeah. See you later, kids. Enjoy filling your water bottle. <laughs> close, close the freezer door. Um, uh, yeah, he's just, it, it's so great. Like, he doesn't have a huge part in this, and mm-hmm. it's so quiet. And then um, the other man who shows up in this in this show is Josh Radner, who just loves playing a man who loves to be right about everything. And He was from How I Met Your Mother, yeah. right? Yeah, I didn't like that character. I mean, I liked him as a character, but like I read some reviews that like talked about him as being a nice supportive husband. I was like, he was kind of a grumpy asshole. (laughs) Yeah, he was constantly saying like how she it was the same thing Toby did to Rachel about how like, oh, I guess I'll do this. Yeah, yeah. you're not you're not participating. And, And true, like Libby wasn't. And I do think that it's. It's reasonable to expect your partner to come home every night sure. or at least inform you if they're not coming home, if they're going to stay in New York for two days yeah, <laughs> with yeah. no contact. I, I do think that's reasonable to be upset about. Um, but also, yeah, just again, the same thing about like his total dismissal of the fact that she's going through something very real. Like mm-hmm. she can't articulate it, but she's just she's telling him like, I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know what's going on, but like I'm trying to work on this. And he's basically just like, shut the fuck up. We have everything we want. Yeah. And you had sent me a really interesting article about um, her her struggle in being in the suburbs being legitimate. Like yeah. as somebody who has lived in New York and and thrived in New York and it it really did articulate some of the things that I personally have felt about the suburbs and I'm sure you have too, which is, um, you know, is it just like innate snobbery that we're like, I don't want to be in the suburbs right. or is it, and this article makes the point that, you know, life is lived in a different way in the suburbs. People live in, in their houses and then. Yeah. It was written by someone who had decamped from New York mm-hmm. to what she described as rural, someplace rural, not specified. During the and, uh, yeah, and how, yeah, how oppressive it is. And I've I have struggled with my own thoughts about my resistance to moving mm-hmm. out of San Francisco, which I know is not New York, but um, is allegedly uh, still a city. Yeah, something of a city. And this article talked about how it's just there aren't there's something life giving. I might might be putting my own perspective on this. I can't remember what was in the article and what just gave way to my own thoughts. But um, I am an introvert. I don't really like chat up people on the street, but mm-hmm. I do find something really uh, humanizing, I guess, about being in a city where there's just so much shit going on. Like every time I leave my house, I see people doing weird shit. I see people who aren't like me. Mm-hmm. I see it's just like you see everyone living their lives like on top of on top of other people like there's Mm -hmm. just so many communities in San Francisco and I feel like it would be a real loss not to just sort of be among that every day yeah I think there's something really humanizing about seeing so many people who are unlike yourself and that moving to the suburbs um which is a largely like white upper middle class Mm -hmm. activity is moving to the suburbs to be among people who are just like yourself Mm -hmm. and I think there's something inherently antisocial about that. And mm-hmm. it's what leads to um, really like siloed thinking. And yeah. um, when you lo- live in the suburbs, you're much more likely to 
learn about what's going on in other cities through like the news where yeah. they'll tell you things like, you know, San Francisco's a war zone, yeah. which I can personally tell you it's not. I mean, I've seen some fucked up shit, but yeah. um, it's just people living their lives. And uh, I think that, I mean, I, I kind of joke to you that like, this is what's wrong with America, but I really do think I, that. I think yeah. like everyone's segmenting themselves into, um, not that this is like a, individual choice that does this obviously like mm -hmm. our country is really driven by um you know larger forces and people who have their hands on the levers of power which is not the majority of us but um it's what leads to yeah like just all the social breakdown and mm -hmm. like um just uh not not acknowledging everyone else in this country as humans and letting uh, le letting yourself think that uh, it's okay that there are winners and losers under our our system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I won't name, but I which because I, I do every single Sunday. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just think that uh, today's word it starts with C. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and I do also think, honestly, like one of the things I love in a city is I love the the flow of a city that's mm -hmm. going on around you and the chance to be completely anonymous. And then the thing I love most about living in a city is running into somebody you fucking know. Yeah. And like the sense of immediate connection mm -hmm. I get in my life when I'm randomly in a different neighborhood and I run into somebody I know yeah. is a real thrill. Like one of the few thrills I've had in my life. <laughs> I, somebody's going to... Um, Somebody's going to flag like our content for Twitter, like mediation. They'll be like, I don't think they're okay. Somebody should reach out to this lady. She's really going through some stuff. Fleischman made me realize some stuff, guys. Um, no, but uh, yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah. Like that, I. That's why we live here, right? Yeah, right? Like you would never get that in the. I, I, ha I was talking to somebody about this recently, like some new mom friends that I have. We were all talking about a day back in 2004 we were talking about how like one of them met their husband or whatever mm -hmm. and they were at a party and then they had to leave to go to this show and uh they were talking about the show and I was like I was at that show oh really like, that's so funny just the, like all of that like just yeah. the like time unfolding like that was the whole like and now I, and now and now like yeah just, just the the possibility for connection and and the very real disconnect that like you have to actively turn away from human misery daily like all mm. of it is is right there in front of you in a way that it can never be in the suburbs yeah 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 i think there's something inherently humanizing about living in a city not to shit you know some some people like a more quiet life and i totally understand that but, and also um, some people do have robust communities in a suburb absolutely that yeah they have like potlucks every friday yeah. with like swords of neighbors and yeah and i like acknowledge that. there and are some very real true difficult difficulties with raising children in a big city particularly san francisco which criminally criminally wealthy city with a underfunded and yeah. difficult public school system so i'm not yeah. trying to shit on anyone's choices to leave the city when it's time but um i but your kids will be cooler yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something I also I told you I struggle with. Am I is uh, finding the suburbs oppressive, just some sort of unearned snobbishness, internal bias? Yeah. yeah. Or do I think there's something like 
that makes me cool about living in San Francisco, which it absolutely does not. Like, yeah. I live here because I lucked into a rent-controlled apartment 12, uh, 13 years ago mm-hmm. that I now feel like I can't leave. And um, there's nothing that makes you cool about living in this dumb fucking overpriced city <laughs> full <laughs> of assholes. <laughs> but I do worry, like, is that is that the only thing cool about me? And will I be losing that if I move to Albany or something? Who gives a shit? Like, I can afford to even live in Albany. Who am I yeah. kidding? Union City tops. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. <Okay. laughs> they have a BART station. <laughs> Allegedly. I've never been there. <laughs> Grim. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fleischman's in trouble. Yeah, but we're all in trouble. Basically. We love it, folks. Um, but yeah, I just I loved it. I loved the way that it really spun the narrative. It was great. Um, I was very moved for some reason, like another just visceral feeling when Toby and his two children go see the Vanta Black yes. exhibit at the museum, yeah. and they um they're all just kind of overwhelmed by this like really dark room. Yeah, staring uh, into the void. Yeah, possible. staring into the void. I just, I don't know. I always come back to that. I, I don't know. I was just moved by it. Just yeah. not being able to um, take staring into the void. Yeah. <laughs> I, I sympathize with that. Yeah. <laughs> I also, uh, the show leans tangentially on them being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And there's a really, really touching scene in the last episode where Hannah, um, Toby's daughter, decides not to do her but bat mitzvah Mm -hmm. and he really sees her for the first time like she she gives this impassioned speech about like you always tell us to think for ourselves yeah and and the rabbi had just given her a speech about like taking on the burden of like this community and striving to do better and fix what's broken and she says like she hasn't even broken anything which obviously is about the relationship you know the divorce and how kids are affected by that and he just has this moment of seeing her as like a separate person right. and he does a blessing um and she breaks down in tears which was really moving kids crying really gets me um <laughs> no that's a really good pre- point pre-teens feeling any emotion yeah <laughs> really gets me that's a great point because i was telling you i felt unsympathetic towards toby and i th- the whole show was sort of about him not fully seeing Rachel as a yeah. real person, the full person, because she's a woman. So that's that's nice that he had that moment with his daughter of seeing her as an actual autonomous yeah. human being. And it was also realizing that, uh, you know, and it's explicitly stated as they're walking out that he, you know, they say something like divorce is like an earthquake for the people, but it's like a chronic condition for like for the two people who are going through it, but it's a chronic condition for the kids to live with for the rest of their lives, you know? And he just sort of shifts in that moment from it being a burden to, you know, they're all in this together. And um, yeah, it's like, there. it was just, the show is just imbued with like hope and it just felt really like wise and kind and just, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was great. Um, Yeah, me too. Yeah, and the Jewishness I liked I like that that's, you know, a big aspect of who they were as a family. Um, But it wasn't, you know, I I do feel for people living on the Upper East Side, like that's a social outlet as much as anything else. It's about like being seen at Temple and not necessarily about questioning the faith. And I really like that moment where Hannah is, you know, like I haven't even broken anything, like, you know, questioning, like why, why do we do this other than just to be seen? So, yeah. 
I'm all in, guys. I highly <laughs> recommend Fleischman is in trouble. Will it get a second season? Oh, God, I fucking hope not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'd be down for seeing all these people again, but in a different setting. I don't know. I'd like to... Let's do a second season focused on Archer Sylvan. Let's get his story. He's dead. Let's see. Well, he won't be in the second season. Oh, okay. It won't be his story. Let's have Libby narrate his life story. That's great. <laughs> and then um, at the end, it turns out she's reading the audio book. Yeah. For- <laughs> also, I do have to say that Libby Kaplan, Lizzie, Lizzie Kaplan, <laughs> is the perfect person for this type of, yeah. like, I just feel like sort of of our generation, like she has always embodied that like ennui and searching mm-hmm. for more and always being like a cynical person who's too cool to like yeah, commit yeah. to anything. And like, of course, that's the type of person who would end up in the suburbs in New yeah, Jersey yeah, totally. who would just be like, what the fuck? I happened upon a movie the other <laughs> night that like was just Hulu recommended it to me. It was from 2012 and it was Lizzie Kaplan, Allison Brie, and then Martin Starr. And I can I never like remember I've his name. The guy who was married to Christina Hendricks, who's got like curly hair and oh crazy yeah 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 face. That weird guy Jeffrey somebody <laughs> yes Jeffrey Arend, um and it's about like Lizzie Kaplan and Jeffrey Arend breaking up and sh- she and Allison Brie are sisters and Martin Starr and Jeffrey Arend are in an indie rock band together and I had not seen it before but I was like a how have I not seen yeah. this movie before <laughs> like yeah and b it just felt so 2012 like yeah. just this like quiet indie movie about 20 somethings like breaking up and being in indie bands i was just like it just felt like you told chat gps to make a 2012 <laughs> indie movie <laughs> sorry um yeah it was enjoyable enough but kind of middle of the road i don't know i just i, I was like really you're... struck by how 2012 it felt <clears throat> excuse me when you were describing that i was like i have seen this movie i don't yeah. think i have yeah right <laughs> i've seen eight versions of exactly. that movie for sure <laughs> yeah you're starring the same cast just Absolutely. all switched around <laughs> like, did you see that movie with martin Starr and may whitman yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah but anyway i thought the whole cast was amazing oh and speaking of that really quickly i do have to mention much has been said about claire danes being like a lot of people were like why is Claire Danes even in this and then you get to episode seven which is all about Rachel Mm -hmm. and Claire Danes in that episode has literally never in my life before have I thought about an actor acting as much as I did in that I thought her performance was amazing she was great in the whole literally would not be able to do what Claire Danes did in that show. Yeah. Uh, we all know Claire Danes for her ugly cry, right? That's yeah. like, it's a meme. It's a whole thing. Like, that's what Claire Danes, that's her bread She's and butter. Best. She is the best at an ugly cry. Claire Danes walked into, I was just thinking through the process of like, there's cameras, there's 70 people, there's a script, there's like 85 people on set. There's yeah. a set that you walk into. There's a guy saying like, your breath is, trapped you need to scream to let it out which by the way also extremely relatable like (laughs) the number second only to hysteria is women's breath being trapped in their voice (laughs) like your voice being trapped in your throat like that is second yeah second only to hysteria but she has to scream and the scream that this lady did I was like and then you get up and go to craft services yeah (laughs) You get a couple cheese Can I cubes? get a fava bean salad, please? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. It is insane. And Taffy Brodesser Ackner, I was a fan long before Fleischman is in trouble. I loved her writing, which is specifically why I read the book. 
Um, yeah, just amazing. She talked about how she never realized the process for actors actually acting. And yeah, dance, outstanding. The whole cast was great. Yeah. Anyway, um, thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to TV on the radio, guys. <laughs> we got more great content coming up this year. Keep it here on BFF.FM. Indie Rock Girl Radio is coming up next. And we will leave you with the Hebrew version of Fight Song. We'll be oh, back next week with...